Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 2, excuse me, Acts chapter 3. We're going to do verses 1 through 16. Our context is Acts chapter 2, the end of the chapter in which Peter preached his Pentecostal sermon, a highlight of which is when he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we learned about the fellowship of the believers, how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and prayers, and so forth, as the church begins its journey, its birth, uh, in there in Jerusalem. And so now we're at the temple, in Acts chapter 3, we're going to talk about Peter and John healing the crippled beggar at the beautiful gate in verses 1 through 16. We start in Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. The Home of Christian Study Bible always translates the Greek into a tie into an, uh, a Western English time, 3 in the afternoon. The Greek is the ninth hour. Well, if you're using Jewish time, the ninth hour starts at six. The first hour starts at six o'clock in the morning, so the ninth hour is three in the afternoon. So we see that Luke is using Jewish time here. The only, it turns out that people have different ideas of what the three Jewish hours of prayer were. They were obviously three, and it was very important to them. In fact, a lot of Christians are now using it as some sort of liturgical discipline to play, pray three times a day at these certain canonical hours, if you will. Most people say the first hour, the first time of prayer, is at the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning. And the second time of prayer is at the sixth hour, which is 12 o'clock noon. And the third time of prayer is the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we're going to go with that. There are some other people who say that it, go, it goes like this. The first hour of prayer is 9 o'clock. The second hour is noon. And the third hour is at sunset at six. I don't know why. I run into that. I can't figure out where that came from. But we're going to go with the majority opinion here. Nine, twelve, and three. Three, six, and nine. Third hour, six hour, nine, uh, ninth hour, which is nine o'clock, twelve o'clock, and three o'clock. So they went up at the hour of prayer at three in the afternoon, which was the last hour. And some people call it the evening prayer because the evening started late in the afternoon, about three, going between 3.30 and six, according to John Gill. But so that's where we were, just for some background. We'll notice that it's Peter and John doing it. These were the leaders among the apostles, as the NIV Study Bible says. Uh, let me show you a scripture which shows that they were leaders, along with James, who, didn't, who wasn't here for some reason. Galatians 2.9, when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, recognized as pillars, pillars in the Jerusalem church, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, Paul, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So these are the leaders of the apostles. They were especially close to Jesus, Mark 9, 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led him up to the high mountain. That's the Mount of Transfiguration. Mark 13, 3, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Jesus gave Peter and John, along with James and Andrew, the Olivet Discourse, a very important teaching. So Peter and John were there. They were always in on the action. Mark 14, 33. He, Jesus, took Peter, James, and John with him to a lonely spot in Gethsemane, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. So Peter and John were there at Gethsemane along with James. He's the other of the three leaders. Luke 22:8. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal. So the leaders went and did that important task of preparing the Passover meal. Mark 5:37. He did not let anyone accompany him to him. 
This is going into Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter. He did not let anyone accompany him, Jesus didn't, except Peter, James, and John. There's James again along with Peter and John. So Peter and John were two of the three leaders of the apostles. They were close to each other, often seen together in the New Testament, as I just mentioned, but also they were arrested together, Acts 4 and 3. So they seized them, Peter and John, and put them in custody. This is in the next chapter. Peter and John ministered together in Samaria when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message. They sent Peter and John to them so they could receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John ran together to Jesus' grave, John 18:15. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple, that was John. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so he went with Jesus into the high court's high priest courtyard. So here we have Peter and John entering into the courtyard of Caiaphas as Jesus is being run through his kangaroo court trial on Good Friday. And also at the Last Supper, we see in John 13, verses 23 and 24, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, that was John, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So there's John and Peter together again. We now move to Acts chapter 3, verse 2. And a man who was lame from birth was carried there and placed every day at the temple gate called Beautiful, so he could beg from those entering the temple complex. Well, let's talk about where they were first. The gate called Beautiful, it's not exactly known where it was. Everybody agrees, all the scholars agree that it was the Nicanor Gate, but nobody knows exactly where the Nicanor Gate was. Well, first of all, let's look at the two options for where the Nicanor Gate was. If you have a picture of the Jewish temple in your mind, which I realize you probably don't, but I hope you one day get it in your mind, you go through the East Gate, you go through Solomon's Porch, you go into the little the Court of Gentiles, at which at the eastern end of the temple complex is pretty narrow, and then you go into the Court of Women that has the four buildings in the corner, four storerooms, and then you go out of the Court of Women up some stairs into the little narrow Court of Men, or the Court of Israel. Now, the Nicanor Gate was either at the eastern end as you entered the Court of Women or it was at the western end of the Court of Women as you exited the Court of Women and it's not clear where it was. So we'll have to live with that ambiguity. Now, the scholars agree that the beautiful gate was the Nicanor Gate. This was an unusual gate because it was a gate sheathed in bronze as opposed to silver and gold. Let me read something about it here. Let's see, I'll read from John Gill first. He believes the, Nic- the beautiful gate, the Nicanor gate, the, I call it the Nicanor slash beautiful gate, was at the eastern end of the court of women. He says this, the entrance was at the east gate. Here it might be thought in all probability was laid the lame man. Though it seems rather to be the eastern gate of the court of women, which was made of Corinthian brass and looked brighter than gold itself, of which Josephus thus speaks, Nine of the gates were covered all over with gold and silver, likewise the side post and lentils. But there was one, without the temple, of Corinthian brass. In fact, some people call the Nicanor Gate the Corinthian Gate. Of of Corinthian brass, which in dignity greatly exceeded the silver and golden ones. In other words, the Nicanor Gate was interesting because even though it wasn't gold and silver, the more precious metals, it was made of cheaper metal bronze, it uh, it still had greater dignity and beauty. And since this gate was the greatest frequency of persons, both men and women entering here, again, he thinks it's on the eastern end where where you enter the court of women, it is most likely that here lay a lame man a-begging. That's John Gill. Here's Adam Clark. 
The magnitudes of the other gates were equal one to another, but that of the Corinthian gate, that's the Nicanor gate, Nicanor slash beautiful gate, that of the Nicanor gate which opened on the east, he also says has it at the east end of the court of women, over against the gate of the holy house itself was much larger. It was a large gate, for its height was 50 cubits, and its doors were 40 cubits, and it was adorned after a most costly manner as having much richer and thicker plates of silver and gold upon them than upon the other. Well, so Clark says that the gate had silver and gold, not just bronze, which means he contradicts Gill. Well, that's just great. (laughs) All right, well, let's see if I can find... No, I don't have any more quotations of what this gate looked like. It's just a big... I'm going to assume it was bronze and that it was bigger and more beautiful than all the other gates. And so it was a place where everybody knew. And that's the main point of this. It was everybody knew. So everybody saw this lame man out there every day, every day at the temple called Beautiful, which is one of the central points of the temple, everybody at the temple complex. Everybody knew where it was and what it was. And why would he be begging there? Because, hey, when people go into the temple, they're giving alms to the poor. They make them feel more holy, so it's time to give money to the poor. And there's a poor person, no, we can give him money. So this guy was not dumb, the lame guy. He was making more money there by going to the temple. Somebody had to carry him there because he was so lame he couldn't even, couldn't, even, couldn't even crawl or he had to be carried. Now, he was lame from birth. He was now over 40 years old, as the next chapter tells us, Acts 4.22, for this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. So he'd been lame for over 40 years, and he every day they carried him to the public place to beg. So everybody knew this guy. He'd been there forever, in everybody's memories, just forever. Interestingly, John Gill points out that this man could only legally beg from Jews. So that means another reason why he'd be going to the temple. He couldn't beg legally from Gentiles, but Jews would be going into the temple, into the court of women on the way into the court of men and so forth. We go to verse 3, 4, and 5 of Acts chapter 3. When he, the lame man from birth, saw Peter and John about to enter the temple complex, he asked for help. So Peter and John were either going into the court of women or into the court of men, depending on which end of the court of women the Nicanor slash beautiful gate was. He saw Peter and John, the lame man, and he asked for help. Of course, what he was asking for was money. Peter, along with John, looked at him intently and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. Now, why did, he, why did Peter and John say, look at us? I suspect that the beggar was looking down and mumbling with his bowl held up the way beggars often do. I lived in China, and I saw so much begging, I tell you, it tears your heart out. And, of course, half of them are crooks. You don't know whether this is legitimate begging or whether it's fraudulent begging. But when you see somebody that really is begging, a lot of these people came from the countryside and went to the big city because they were so poor in the countryside, and they lived on the streets of Beijing especially or in the subways, and they would hold that bowl up or they would they would, they just looked beat down. It just looked horrible, horribly cast down and and rejected of men, I guess you could say. And so this man was probably not looking straight at Peter and John. He's probably holding his bowl up and looking down at the ground. And Peter said, now, Peter and John said, look at us, look at us. Now, why did they want him to look at them? Because they wanted the man to know that he was about to get healed. And they wanted to know, and they wanted to uh, be sure that the man knew how he was healed and whose name he was healed in Jesus' name. He didn't want those that lame man to go out and say, well, it just happened. I don't know how it happened, but I can walk now. No, he wanted to know it was in the name of Jesus. Also, when the beggar looked at Peter and John and saw their confidence, 
that would increase the beggar's faith. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown points that out. The NIV says that Peter and John looked straight at him, or the Homer Christian Sunday Bible says that they looked intently at the beggar. Now, notice the confidence of Peter and John. They're standing there. Look at us. We're going to heal you. Well, compare that to 50 days earlier or so when Jesus had just been crucified, and they're cowering in somebody's house in Jerusalem with the shutters shut so that nobody could see them. They had fled from the Garden of Gethsemane. They were frightened to death, and now look at them. They didn't care what the Jewish authorities said. Those same Jewish authorities who had bedeviled the, the, Jesus and his apostles for so long, they didn't care. Right there in front of them. Look at us. We're going to heal you right here in the temple. This is a great apologetic point because these Gospels and, and these uh, books of the Bible are historically accurate. There's so much history here, and you cannot knock the, uh, the accuracy of the history down. Even, even dead-blamed liberals who are constantly picking at points that are bad here and there, even they can't deny the general historicity of the book. And when you look at this and you see how powerful Peter and John had become spiritually, as opposed to just 50 days, just less than two months earlier. This is a great apologetic point. Something happened, and I'll tell you what happened. Jesus rose again from the dead, and the Holy Spirit fell and gave these men power to witness. We go to verse 6 in Acts chapter 3. But Peter said, I don't have, he said to the lame man, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Get up and walk. Now notice that Peter and John were very careful that the glory from the healing did not go to them, but to Jesus, because they said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Peter said, I don't have silver or gold. That was true. Peter and John were poor fishermen from Galilee, and they were down in the big city in Jerusalem. They didn't let their poverty or their country bumpkin ways get in the way of doing great things for Jesus. They just did not care about their social status. I remember reading one time somewhere that the best evangelist in India and China and I know this is true. They don't have anything. They don't have any money. And they just go out and do miracles, get people healed, and get people saved by the bucket loads. But you look in America, and we're all worried about our, as Merle Haggard put it, our so-called Social Security. And we're worried about our 401K. And is our SUV getting the best gas mileage that it could? And, oh, I don't want to offend somebody at my bridge club by talking about Jesus too much, there's no wonder that the American church is so screwed up. But boy, I tell you, when, when you got poor people, they got the Holy Spirit, they'll go out and they'll spread the word. And that's why the gospel is growing so fast in the East, in India and Asia. Just for example, how about Africa? That's, you can say the same thing about Africa. Now I'm going to read you an interesting quote concerning Thomas Aquinas. This is Adam Clark quoting Aquinas, quote, Thomas Aquinas, who is highly esteemed by Pope Innocent IV, going one day into the Pope's chamber, where they were reckoning large sums of money, the Pope, addressing himself to Aquinas, said, You see that the church is no longer in an age in which he could say, Silver and gold have I none. It is true, Holy Father, replied the angelical doctor, nor can she now say to the lame man, Rise up and walk, which story, which quotation sort of illustrates what I was just talking about. We don't do miracles in America today. We got, we're too rich. But Peter and, James, Peter and John were poor, and they had the power of Christ, and they didn't mind going up to somebody and saying, I'm going to do a miracle on you. Gosh, if we could have more people to do that today, the church might not be so moribund. 
Now, notice that Peter calls Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. Now, remember, Nazarene is kind of a mud hole of a place, a wretched mud hole. And Peter identifies Jesus as coming from Nazareth. He didn't mind doing that because now he had the power of Christ working with him. He didn't mind. He didn't care. He didn't matter where Jesus came from. Another Jesus was another poor man that did a lot of good stuff. Kind of like Jesus doesn't care about the rich and the powerful. He cares in, in worldly terms. He cares about the powerful and the spirit, people who are powerful in the spirit. Jesus had just been executed as a criminal, and he just came from that nasty Nazareth place. And yet Peter's saying, in the name of Jesus of the Nazarene, rise up and walk. Jesus overcome, overcame his social limitations. Peter overcame his social limitations. And anybody in the body of Christ can do the same thing. Quit worrying about how low they are in status. Adam Clark, who seems to be on a vendetta against Catholics, <laughs> made this point. It's amazing that in Catholic history, dead saints could do more miracles than the saints who were alive. <laughs> so, in other words, the Pope told Thomas Aquinas, Innocent IV said, well, we can't do miracles anymore. But, oh, when our saints die, everybody can go up and touch their relics and, woo, they get um, healed. But when they're alive, no healings are done. Well, Adam Clark was in a time when Protestants had a clearer vision of the Catholic Church than they do, than they do now. Of course, the Catholic Church is probably in worse shape than it is now. Although, I don't know about that. It's not in such good shape now in the 21st century. Acts verse three, Acts chapter 3, verse 7. Then, taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and ankles became strong. Then IV says he helped him up, but the Greek, the Helmer Christian Standard Bible has he raised him up, grabbed him by the hand. Now, this does not mean that the man did not have faith to be healed, as the NIV Study Bible says. He does have faith. We'll read that in the next verse, or the next several verses. He did have faith, but Peter and John helped him in his faith, helped him up. Well, let's see the verse that shows that he has faith. It's Acts 3, verse 16. By faith in his name... His name, Jesus' name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus, through him, has given this perfect health in front of all of you. So there, Luke, in Acts chapter 3, verse 16, clearly says that faith made that man walk by faith in his name. So the man did have faith even though he was helped up. So there's nothing wrong with helping somebody who's been lame to help him get started. Because, you know, Peter and James had faith, too. So did the man. It probably helped his faith to have the apostles lift him up. So I can see the power of Christ throwing through his feet and angles. This means a lot to me because the first miracle I saw after I was about to lose my faith and to pray for two or three years, oh, God, oh, God, please show me a miracle. I don't believe that it's hard for me to believe that the, the Bible documents are real because they relate miracles all the time. And all I see around me is rationalism and miracles don't exist anymore. And by golly, when... Carolyn and Susan and my InterVarsity Christian Fellowship prayed for my feet to grow out, my my uh, my ankles actually, not my feet, but my ankles, and I felt that hot pouring oil, electrical oil, I, I call it, that's what it felt like, electricity running through hot boiling oil, running through the middle of my leg from my calf down, and I watched my left foot grow out about a quarter of an inch, and my two ankle bones line up perfectly, and I walk around, and I feel that weight on my left foot that I've never felt before because my legs were a little bit cattywampus. I know what that felt like. I know what that man felt when he felt the power of God run through his feet and his ankles and so that he could stand up and walk. Don't doubt these miracles, folks. Don't be foolish. The Bible is true. All right. So, and let me make this point too. I've already made it 
once, I'll make it again. Faith is a component of divine healing. Now, I know that people in the charismatic movement, the so-called faith ministers, have totally given faith a bad name. And I know cessationists go around talking about faith healers, like faith is a dirty word. Folks, Acts 3.16 says this very clearly. Peter was a faith healer. <laughs> Peter said, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong. So that faith comes through Jesus. Now, the faith message leaves out that faith comes through him, faith comes through Jesus. They, they, they tend to say that faith comes through saying the faith formula correctly, and that's nonsense. But it's also nonsense to say that faith has nothing to do with healing and God just sovereignly heals somebody. Nah, your faith works in, in hand in glove with God's sovereignty when it comes to asking for something, not just healing, but anything. Faith is our response to God's grace. The God's grace was there in the, in the form of those two apostles offering healing, and they and, and the man accepted. He didn't say, "Don't don't pick me up by the hand. You can't heal me. You just two you just two human beings. What do you think you are?" So yeah, faith is a component of divine healing. If you don't open your heart up in belief, don't expect God to be doing a lot of stuff for you. That's just that's just the way it is. Note that the man had to stand up as he was being raised. He would have to stand up in order to show the faith as described in verse 16 that I just read. By faith in his name, he showed that faith by standing up. Now, he didn't stand up in order to get healed. He stand up in response to the healing that was coming to him. And that's a, that's a very important distinction. I remember one time when I was in college, I decided I was going to throw my glasses out of car window to show that I had faith that my eyes would be healed. I never had a word from God that he was going to heal my eyes. And... Doing something is not going to force God to do something. Your your actions have got to respond have got to be a response to the faith that God has already given you in your heart, and that faith comes from a word of God, a direct spiritual illumination, if you will. I know cessationists only want to use word and sacrament, and they can't stand the thought of the Holy Spirit directly talking to somebody. I don't know how in the world they ever got married. There's nothing in my concordance that says who I was supposed to marry. I had to rely on the Holy Spirit telling me. Oh, anyway, we will move on now to verses 8, 9, and 10. So he, the man blamed from birth, jumped up, stood, and started to walk. See there, he didn't just sit there and say, oh, God, make me walk. No, he got up. He got himself up and walked in response to what God had did, done for him. It just shows that we're not passive robots in healing or anything else. He jumped up, stood, and started to walk, and he entered the temple complex with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. He was pretty excited about that miracle. He didn't go around saying, oh, all these faith healers, all a bunch of fakes. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple complex. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what happened to him. All right, so uh, the, all right, so the lame man entered the temple complex. This is a question as to where he was, because we don't know where that beautiful gate was. John Gill has him going from the court of the Gentiles into the court of women, going back toward the temple. But he ends up in Solomon's porch in the next verse or so. Uh, in the next, mm, I forgot where, in the next couple of verses. In the next verse, actually, in verse 11, he ends up in Solomon's porch, Solomon's colonnade. And that has him going away from the temple back to the outer gate. And so, and of course, John Gill believes the Nicanor slash beautiful gate is to the east of the court of women. So he would be going back in from the east, going toward the west, toward the temple. But I think he was probably going from the Nicanor gate, which I probably, well, I don't know if it was on the west. He's going east through the court of women, out through the court of Gentiles, which, and then into Solomon's porch, going west. And that's probably what he what he did in order to get to Solomon's porch. And as he went, 
wherever he was going. He was walking, leaping, and praising God all the way there in the temple, all the way through the court of the women, all the way through the court of Gentiles, all the way out to the to Solomon's porch. Now, why did he go with Peter and John? Why did he accompany Peter and John? Gil, who hasn't gone toward the temple, says that he was going with the apostles to do some divine worship. I don't think so. He was probably trying to show respect to Peter and John because Peter and John were the instruments God used in his cure. I can imagine Peter and John enjoying the sight and going with him. Why was the man leaping as he went? Well, he was leaping for joy. He could have been leaping to show everyone that he was indeed perfectly healed. Look, 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 I can walk, I can jump. He could have been trying to convince himself, as Adam Clark says, maybe he wanted to try his legs to convince himself he was really cured. Maybe he was just jumping up as a testimony of gratitude to God. Here we see Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled in a most literal manner, Isaiah 35, 6. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Then, in the times of the Messiah, in the times of Jesus, in the times of the Holy Spirit, in the New Covenant era, then the lame will leap like a deer. Notice the man was leaping and praising God. He didn't praise the disciples. He praised God because the disciples were very clear. Peter and John were very careful to say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, rise up and walk. Not, we're going to heal you, buddy. They deflected the glory immediately to God, which is very, very important because people love to have gurus and they love to have healers. Now, it says that the people were filled with awe who saw what had happened to the cured lame man. They were filled with awe. We tend to think that a, in a credulous, miraculous age, such as back then, that miracles were no big to the people. Oh, yes, they were. Even when people expected miracles more than we expect miracles today in our rationalist age, even back then, miracles were a doggone big deal. So this was a big deal to see this man walking and leaping. And notice in verse 9 that it says that all the people saw him walking and praising God. In other words, there was a crowd around. And this goes to show once more that this miracle was done in the most of the one of the most public places possible, as most of Jesus' miracles were. Why? Because he was very concerned about evidence. Evidence. He wants people to know, hey, nobody's making this up. This miracle is not fake. There are too many people had seen it. Too many people knew it had been put there every day for over for about forty years. Every day for forty years he's lame and now he's walking around. Hey, how do you fake that? Not even Justin Peters or not even John MacArthur could complain about that. <laughs> so evidence is important. Now, a lot of charismatics violate that principle. They, they claim some healing, and they can't back it up and make fools out of the, out of, he, of themselves and, and bring disrepute upon the power of God to do healings. So charismatics need to be careful about that, in my humble opinion. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. While he was holding on to Peter and John, he was actually holding on to their arm as he walked. All the people, greatly amazed, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's Colonnade. Now, if you look at a, I've got a beautiful map of the temple here. Solomon's Colonnade was kind of a narrow walkway with a covered cedared roof with stone pillars, 27 feet high, along the, uh, uh, along the pillars or columns, if you will, holding up that cedar roof, and it was a narrow walkway covered from the rain. You had to get through Solomon's porch in order to get into the court of Gentiles. So it was on the outer ring of the temple. The golden, so-called golden gate was at, in the far e the eastern wall of the temple complex, and you walked through that golden gate, and you were into the court of Gentiles. So Solomon's porch is, is, is toward the outside. 
that it, it had that name because it was erroneously thought to date back to Solomon's time, which it was not. Solomon didn't put it up there. It came, somebody built it later. I wouldn't be surprised if Herod the Great did it, but I don't know that for sure. The NIV Study Bible points that out, that that's where the name came from. Now, why were why was the lame man holding on to Peter and John? John Gill speculates maybe they were afraid the healing should leave them. Maybe they, John Gill also speculates, maybe they were afraid Peter and John was going to leave them. Oh my gosh, you healed me, don't leave me, holy man, you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe it was just because of his affection for Peter and John, because what they had done for him, that's Adam Clark. So this was a great scene, a wonderful scene, one of the greatest miracles done at the beginning of the church. Verse 12 in Acts 3. When Peter saw this, well, what he saw was the people being amazed at the healing of the lame man. When Peter saw that, when he saw this, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us, at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? And once again, Peter's trying to say, ah, don't you start thinking that we're some kind of thaumaturges, some kind of miracle worker. No, 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 no. The glory goes to God. He was very, very quick to attribute glory to God and deflect it from himself. Now, notice that Peter makes note of the fact that the people were staring at Peter and John. Why do you stare at us, Peter said. Obviously, the people were, or it sounds like at least, that the people were on the verge of glorifying Peter and John. And Peter saw that, and he said, nah, we're going to put a stop to that. It's Jesus that did this, not us. Acts 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Well, Peter uses the miracle to do a little preaching. And this is, I'm telling you, this is what miracles are. They're a signpost that point us to heaven. They sh if they're accompanied with evangelism, miracles should not be done willy-nilly just for the fun of it. I remember when we were in college, we used to pray for people's legs to grow out. And we'd watch them grow out and say, oh, this is cool, this is cool. And after a while, it wasn't being done for evangelistic purposes. I saw some great miracles done for evangelistic purposes. But I also saw some, hey, this is fun. It gets to be like... I guess like demon people do when they, they they do all the little tricks and they say, hey, this is cool. And I remember the first time, I'll never forget it, first time I prayed for somebody's foot that was shorter than the other to grow out and it didn't grow out, ooh, was that embarrassing. And ooh, did I have to go, God, what happened here? And the sad thing about that is I think that chasing me so much that I was scared to pray for anybody like that anymore. Well, until now, 40, 50 years later, it was really a shame. But at any rate... At any rate, remember, miracles are for, well, miracles are for compassion, too, if people are sick. But some miracles, I mean, it didn't matter if my leg was a little bit shorter than the other. That, that was an evangelistic thing, or it was an a, a apologetic thing to keep me from losing my faith. That, that miracle had a purpose. We need to always remember that miracles need to be focused on evangelism, on signs and wonders. Signs, a sign is a signpost that points people to the kingdom of heaven. So, the miracle had been done, people are gathered, and now Peter's got a perfect audience he can preach to. They were Jews, so he appeals to God of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's trying to say, this is the God of your fathers, the God of our fathers. You notice how he says, our fathers. Hey, I'm with you, Jews. I'm your fellow Jew. This, the Father God, Yahweh, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Jesus when he... In the presence of Pilate, excuse me, when Pilate had decided to release him. Now, it just amazes me how Peter is trying to get people converted, and he has no problem with saying, you people are a bunch of frippin' murderers. You murdered the Son of God. 
You denied him. Pilate is trying to let him go, and you say, no, 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 give us Barabbas. John 19, 12 says this, from that moment, Pilate made every effort to release him, because Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. It didn't take a rocket scientist to know that he was being being falsely accused and railroaded, and Pilate didn't want to do it, and he made every effort to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And the implicit threat there is, we're going to tell the Romans, we're going to suggest to the Romans that you're not governing your province because you let a revolutionary loose who's opposed to Caesar. So Peter says, this is what you guys did. Maybe you better think about repenting. I'm telling you, that man had guts. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times before Pentecost. What a difference Pentecost makes. I mentioned that as an application point. Maybe if you're a weak Christian and you're scared to witness, maybe you better think about getting filled with the Holy Spirit like Peter did, like the other earlier apostles did. In Acts, you cut through all the theology, all the stuff, and just ask God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and make you a powerful witness. It can be done. I'm telling you, I was scared to death to witness before that experience. And after I was filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't have any problem with it at all. Gone to China and done it. I've run from the cops in China as I thought I was about to be arrested and never see my family again. <laughs> I wish I could say I was as bold as Peter. But, hey, it's because I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't even have been over in China if I hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. I, I, you know, I talk to people all the time about the Lord. But I didn't for years. Scared to do it. So anyway, we got this big transformation in Peter's character. He stood up, and of course he's speaking to Jews who can turn him over to the Sanhedrin, which is going to happen in the next chapter. And he's going to get in trouble with the Jewish authorities, and he knows that. He's not stupid. But he just he not only preaches the gospel, he accuses them of being accomplices to murder. Oh, where's the sinner-friendly, excuse me, the seeker-friendly aspects of Peter's gospel message? I don't see it. Now, notice when Peter says, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's trying to show that, look, I have not abandoned the Jewish faith. I'm still Jewish. Jesus fulfills the Jewish faith, and you don't have to feel like you're abandoning Judaism by believing in Jesus. That was an important point. Verses 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 3. But you, Peter continues to berate his potential converts, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You kill the source of life whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Denied the Holy and Righteous One. Of course, the Holy and Righteous One is Jesus. You asked to have a murderer. His name was Barabbas, given to you. Give us Barabbas. Pilate says, hey, let me release him. I'll release somebody every, every festival uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a sop, as a gift to the Jewish people. Let me let one of these condemned criminals go. Wait, have we got this guy up there? Uh, Jesus, he's innocent. Why don't you let him go? No! Give us Barabbas. Let Barabbas loose. And then Peter says, you kill the source of life. Ironic. You want life? Well, guess what? You just killed the ch your chance of life. You killed him. But the good news is God raised him from the dead, so he got his life back. We are witnesses of this and witnesses of the resurrection from the dead. So let's look at this phrase, holy and righteous one. Peter is implicitly saying Jesus was holy. He was righteous. But then he contrasts them with the Jews who are listening, and his implicit message is, you ain't holy, and you ain't righteous. You killed him. Maybe you better think about repenting. When Peter says, you kill the holy and righteous one, Adam Clark says this is a manifest, quote-unquote, manifest reference to Psalm 1610. And unfortunately, 
in my translation, Home and Christian Study Bible, it doesn't. It's not so manifest because Home and Christian Study Bible says, "For you will not abandon me to Sheol; you will not allow your faithful one to see decay." Well, the King James, NASB, the New American Standard, the English Standard Version has your holy one. The Greek is the same, where it's quoted in Acts 2 and Psalm 16 here. Peter quoted it in Acts 2. And Psalm 16 here, the Greek is exactly the same. I don't know why the, I say the Greek, the, the Septuagint Greek is the same as the New Testament Greek. I don't know why the Holman Christian Study Bible translates that. You will not allow your faithful one to see the clay, the Revised Standard Version has godly one, and I found another version, which unfortunately I forgot to write down, that says, I think it's the NIV has, well, I don't, I can't remember, but it has something else besides holy one. It just seems to me that the best translation is holy one, because that's what most of the translations have, and that fits good here. So, but you denied the holy and righteous one, the holy one who would not see death, who would not see decay. You killed him. Go to verse 16. Peter continues in his sermon, by faith in his name, his name has made this man strong. Notice it's not. Well, first of all, there were two things that made this man strong, that made the lame man walk. First is Jesus' name, and name stands for a person's authority. So Jesus' authority and his power and his strength made this man strong. Right. Also, though, connected with that is faith in that name. Faith in Jesus' name made the man strong, whom you see and know. In other words, this you know the man. He's been sitting there for 40 years outside the beautiful gate begging, and you see him now. You see him walking. So Peter says it was faith that made him strong and his name that made him strong. He continues in verse 16. So the faith that comes through him. So you see faith connected with Jesus, faith that comes through him. And this is where the faith message people get off a lot of times is they all the time talking about faith, 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 and they forgot his faith in what? I remember seeing a Kenneth Copeland TV broadcast one time. He's at the bottom of the, they had a slogan down there, have faith in your faith. I said, oh, my gosh, that is such nonsense. It's faith in Jesus, not faith in your faith. Yeah, he changed that later. I think somebody criticized him for it, but a lot of good it did. Faith in Jesus' name, not faith in your faith. Faith that comes through him. I'm quoting directly from Acts 3.16, quote, so the faith that comes through him, unquote. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given this perfect health in front of all of you. Notice Peter mentions this man. You see this man walking whom you see and know. Again, he's appealing to evidence. No fraud, no imposture. We didn't fake this one. I can't emphasize that enough. I think any charismatic listening to this, you need next time you do a miracle, you better make sure that people see it and you can document it and people can testify credibly that the miracle took place. Otherwise, don't bother doing the miracle. Or at least don't bother talking about it, because people are just going to say, I don't believe in miracles. Now, when Peter says, so the faith that comes through him, through Jesus, what faith is he talking about? Well, it could be the faith of the lame man or the faith of Peter and John. Or it could be both. That's up in there, I don't know. But whosoever faith it was, Peter or John or the lame man, it came through Jesus, through him. Now, one last parting shot at cessationist here. You will notice that Peter was a faith healer. He had faith, or he, in, he, or he engendered faith in the lame man, and the lame man was healed. So therefore, Peter was a quote-unquote faith healer. Now, I mention that because cessationist types have made a pejorative out of the words faith and healer. And of course, charismatic faith message extremist, quasi-Christian scientists have, made, have given, faith, given the word faith a bad name. And healer has been given a bad name by all the quacks and the crooks that are out there making a mockery of Jesus' name. 
and giving ammunition to Christian deists like John MacArthur and Justin Peters. So it's really sad what people will do. But I just point out to you, if somebody wants to start complaining about faith healers, I'll say, well, go look at Acts 3.16. Wasn't Peter a faith healer? And I, In fact, I did this one time uh, similar to this. Somebody was complaining about all charismatic excesses. And I said, mm-hmm, but what about Paul? He spoke in tongues more than you all. He was charismatic. Stop this guy dead, boy. He, he didn't say another word about all the, all the... And that was in a meeting where one of the women in the meeting said something about, quote-unquote, charismatic poop. So so the atmosphere in there was a little bit uh, cessationist, and I put a stop to at least one of them real quick just by pointing to the Scripture. I tell you, if charismatics would spend half their, uh, three-quarters of their time in the Bible and less time reciting other people's experiences, they'd be a lot better off because there's a lot of stuff on their side that's not being used, a lot of scriptural evidence. Anyway, I'm finished with verse 16. We will start next audio on Acts 317 and Peter will continue his evangelization of the people who were gathered around because of the healing of the man born lame. We'll see you next time. Hope you enjoy this audio.